This is not a race against the machines. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the B21 podcast. I'm Viola Rudzier, program assistant at B21, and I'm joined by Agnès. Hi, I'm Agnès, a fourth-year math and computer science undergrad at McGill, and I was a scholar at Building 21 last year. And what was your project on? It was about why math is enjoyable and how we can make it enjoyable for everyone. Cool. That's a useful project. <laughs> <laughs> And so today we'll be talking about hypothetical questions. I think that my favorite kind of hypothetical questions are one where you assume a, an absurd circumstance or an absurd situation and then proceed as though it weren't absurd. So uh, the kinds of questions that we ask at Matterless Matters, for example, I really like. Like the, the other night I had a rather absurd thought of what it would be like if we had removable fingerprints. Like the same way people have nails that they can, you know, are, are, are painted or, or they can remove what that would be like if we had fi uh, fingerprints that were like that. Um, which is a stupid question in a lot of ways, but it, when, if you accept that premise, then it can lead to a lot of really interesting questions, I think. Um, that, again, might be completely useless, but are, are fun to think about. Also, sometimes I think if we start with an absurd premise and we play around with it, after a while, it doesn't feel as absurd anymore. Like, for example, I think maybe that might be one of my favorite hypothetical questions is, what would a city look like without cars in it? Mm -hmm. And, well, at first, I think most people, especially in North America, would say that that's impossible. But when we think about it more and play around with what the consequences of that would be, I think it becomes more, like, plausible to mm -hmm. see that happening in the future. Yeah, Especially because I, I feel like there's, generally speaking, two types of hypothetical questions. And correct me or add another one if you can think of another type. But you have the hypothetical questions that are just like, I don't know, what if we had three arms? Or what if the sky was purple instead of blue? Or something like that. Um, and then you have the questions more like, what would a city look like without cars? Which is a form of problem solving in a way. Like, it's, as you said, it seems like an absurd question at first but then it's a question that's clearly meant to get you thinking about you know ways to reduce pollution uh, help help with climate change things like that and so maybe one of the uses of a hypothetical question is yes we have a problem that's currently insurmountable like having cars in a city but we're not going to find any solutions if we keep thinking of this problem as insurmountable so let's just skip the problem entirely we no longer have cars in the city. What does that look like? And then I guess maybe if the if the end result becomes clear, like, you know, if you say no cars in the city, okay, well, maybe more public transportation, more bikes, more pedestrian paths, just smaller cities in general, things like that, then you've already got a lot of, not solutions exactly, but results of solution. It's really easy to see how to get there, you know, then then you say, okay, well, more more bikes means more bike paths so let's build more bike paths um make sure that every neighborhood has enough of services that you don't have to you don't have to take a car that you don't have to drive 20 minutes to get to the nearest grocery store that you can walk five minutes instead and so in like those kinds of hypothetical questions i think have a very strong use yeah definitely i agree how they can really guide change by helping us step out of our reality and 
constantly limited by, oh, what's real? And think about what do we envision for the future or what even just like an imaginary world that maybe we don't project to happen in the future um, can help us guide how we want change to look like. But I think it, it's not, even if sometimes this sounds useless, the questions, I think they can even inform a lot about like our current reality, especially like counterfactuals. I think sometimes they can really help us understand causality. A lot of things can be related, but until we ask what if we changed this, we don't really understand how something actually was causing something else. Another example related to cars would be maybe if I notice, oh, whenever I'm like really downtown, I feel a bit more stressed or hectic than when I'm in other neighborhoods that maybe have less circulations. And then I could ask, what if there were no cars downtown? Would that change something? So is it the cars that cause kind of like this hectic feeling of downtown? Or, I mean, it could also be other things, but to what extent do cars cause it? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And then I guess when you're thinking of these hypothetical questions, you need to kind of accept the premise. And in order to accept the premise, you kind of turn it into something logical that you can think logically about. And I guess part of that process is really dissecting the question and thinking, you know, okay, obviously as a whole, this would never happen. But what if like this little thing I said, so for example, no cars in cities, all right, that means how do I feel when there are cars? How do I feel when there aren't cars? And then that leads you to, to come up to this like hypothesis that maybe car having no cars in a city would make people less stressed because you, you have to dissect the question in order to really make sense of it. Yeah, agreed. It really helps you like better understand the mental model that you have of a city. Yeah, I think that also it's interesting when... Th- this is the case with any question, really. But I think that specifically with absurd questions like this, if you ask one person the question, they'll come up with their, their, their solution. If you ask another person, they could come up with something completely different that you hadn't even considered. And then if you ask a third person, it might be even, even more different. And so I feel like you can tell a lot with the, the kind of people. Um, I'm thinking right now of uh, Olivier, uh, the, 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 the co-director's favorite question, which is, if you wake up one morning, there's a horde of zombies coming towards you. They'll be there in an hour. No one is around. What do you do? And you can really tell the, how different people work in that case, because I've noticed from just hearing this question asked to a lot of people, there's the people whose first thing will be food and water. Like, make sure I have enough food and water to survive however long. Um, people who will say, you know, shelter, way of getting around. Uh, there's people who will say weapons. There's people who will say, I'm going to join the zombies. There's no point in, in doing anything else. And so you kind of, obviously in a very general way, you get to know something about the people that you ask this question to. Right, because there's no script. It's like situations where we don't have answers to already that are like socially like known to everyone. That's a good point. Because I guess there's some questions where depending on your background, depending on where you grew up, how you were raised, so on, um, where you live, uh, whatever the case may be, there's kind of the answer that you, you give without necessarily knowing why exactly you give it. Um, obviously, there, there's a lot of cases where you, you thought critically about a subject and everything. But um, the example that comes to mind is capitalism is bad. Generally, my 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 approach to thing I think a lot of a lot of students 
at B21 and McGill in general and, you know, you come from a certain background, certain political ideas and stuff, that's kind of the go-to thing, which is fine, but then it doesn't lead to always very interesting answers because everyone kind of says the same thing who's from that perspective. And yeah, you're right. So when there's no script, you don't necessarily know how to react. So there's no there's no go-to answer that you can use. Yeah, and maybe asking hypothetical questions that kind of put you outside of your comfort zone or really make you think, help you also just yourself to understand better how your worldview works. And well, I feel like you could come up with a lot of hypotheticals where kind of like, I guess like this broad idea of capitalism is bad would be kind of challenged and it wouldn't be necessarily apparent at first. So if you don't have this immediate like reaction, oh, I identify this as capitalism, so it's bad. Um, you would have to think about the concrete situation and maybe it would help you identify what, what you think is bad about capitalism or maybe like some aspects that you would want to keep. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And I, and I think that's something kind of interesting about, again, questions broadly, but it becomes more evident with, with hypothetical questions where you answer in a way that you're like, yeah, this is, this is the answer, I think. And then you find yourself in a very weird place when like by the time that you've done answering like just thinking through a situation that's not at all like the world that we actually live in you end up agreeing with a position that you never thought you would agree with because you've thought through it in a different way which is interesting and sometimes can be a bit upsetting if you end up saying something you're like ah that was also something that was said a couple hundred years ago and we clearly know that that was false or something like that but it can also be I think I don't particularly like the word, but educational in the sense that it lets you maybe understand more where other people are coming from. Because if you've managed to get to an answer that you thought that you disagreed with, you can still disagree with it, but you can maybe understand more how someone else might believe that. And then just in general, you know, that maybe produces a bit more empathy or a bit more understanding, which I think only ever leads to better things, not worse things. Yeah, totally. And so, do you think, so earlier I said, like, I think there's kind of two categories of hypothetical questions, the more obviously useful ones, and then the just kind of absurd ones, like, you know, what if the earth was as big as the sun, or something like that? Or what if we had removable fingerprints? First of all, do you agree with this? Is there a third category I'm missing? I wonder if there's, like, some intersection of the two, though. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, very probably. It's rare that there's just two two types of anything. I mean, I, th I guess that probably it's more that there's questions that tend towards one or tend to the others, but have more or less, this is more of a spectrum than, than, a, than a binary. So you've got, I would say that like, what if car, uh, what if there were no cars in cities leans more heavily towards the like, more obviously useful question and I don't know what if we had removable fingerprints more towards the absurd side but then already maybe what if the earth was as big as the sun falls slightly more towards the the useful ones and I think that just in general as soon as you start answering the the question you get to more useful things than you than you expected mm. and I guess also maybe useful in what way since yeah. Even if it's just enjoyable, or I guess like to imagine a different world or take some distance from reality or just kind of, yeah, if that 
that also doesn't have value on its own, even if it doesn't produce any results afterwards. Yeah, I well, you're <laughs> absolutely right. Which which brings me to another question: what What is usefulness? Does everything have to be useful? And is anything really useless? I was having this this conversation with someone when I was describing like the matterless matters talk sort of things like that, and she was like, "Oh, but what's the point of talking about that? Like, you're just like well, there, there, there's no there's no point in talking about it." And I was like, "No, but they're like aside from anything else, it's just fun." And I very strongly think that if something's fun, it's worth doing. Like you know, assuming that you're not hurting anyone or that you're not making anything bad for for anyone or anything, having fun is. A use in and of itself. Yeah, I totally agree. I think often, for example, that this also reminds me of the book, uh, "The Usefulness of Useless Knowledge," mm-hmm. by the founder of the Institute of Advanced Studies in Princeton, which is also a fantastic book that anyone should read if you haven't already read it. Yeah, I think one justification often that's given is that something apparently useless can lead to useful consequences later on. For example, in, in in terms of knowledge, like pursuing what first seems like useless knowledge without applications can later on turn to like big new ideas that unfold into a lot of applications in the more real world. But I also agree with you that even if that doesn't happen, there's value to just being able to take a step back, even if it doesn't have any further consequences, if it's something that's enjoyable or helps you understand your own world better understand yourself better and how you relate to the world then or even if it just makes you yeah enjoy the activity of thinking about these things i think that there's value in that yeah i agree and then obviously the question there becomes does something that leads to fun and nothing else we could say that that's useless but isn't the fact that it makes you have fun or makes you happier or makes you spend an an hour thinking about this rather than like staring at your ceiling that feels like a use in and of itself agreed and i think we can also maybe distinguish between different kinds of fun like i think there's the really just like i mean i'm not too sure how the brain works but just the like immediate reward where it's like oh my brain tells me oh i like this activity but i think something can be enjoyable and make me shape me like make me more open to appreciating things or it can make me feel like it can make me feel like there's more meaning in life or it can <laughs> I don't know it can I think it can have these subtle impacts on just how I live yeah you're right and I guess the different types of fun then are they my my tentative approach is that all fun is useful in the sense that it is fun you are happier doing it than not that to me is 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 a good thing and therefore is useful. I yeah, I totally agree with that. I think it's very subjective. Like if someone says or if someone for themselves thinks they're having fun or knows that they're having fun then I think that's just valuable. In general, I I think for me it's more like there's a bit of like this social conception of what's supposed to be fun. For example, work is supposed to be done at work or like in school and when you have free time you're not supposed to do that because it's not fun. You're supposed to do more like passive things like watch TV or something like that. Whereas I think that's not necessarily fun at all. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's very subjective. And uh, often in my experience, it has a more like active component, but not necessarily like, physically active, but more like you find meaning in it or you create meaning through it. 
and actually, I mean, this kind of ties into your, your project from last year about how to make math fun, which could almost, I think, for a lot of people be put in terms of a hypothetical question. Like, what, mm. what if math was fun? I think because I think I've known more people who disliked the subject of math in school than any other subject. Like, English, maybe people found boring, but, like, it was fine. But, like, math tends to be thought of as, like, hard and boring and a lot of things that, when taught in a certain uh, in a certain way, are probably true, but can be from the very little math that I've done myself. It can be really enjoyable. It can be really fun. So I guess, well, to to talk a little bit about your your project, if math were fun to everyone, would then the subject become more useful? And useful in our definition, where right. like <laughs> <laughs> basically everything counts. Mm, I think if people just had this mathematical, well, just like the fact that they would be able to do math and enjoy it. I think, yeah, that would be valuable to them, valuable to society as a whole. Probably there there (laughs) would be more people doing math. I'm not sure if, in general, society needs more people doing math. We need more people from diverse backgrounds doing math, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And my project, I think, was mostly about having math as a personal thing and making sure everyone has access to that. Because I think that has a lot of personal value, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think for me it felt very much like reading. Because mm. generally when, if someone says that they read, you know, there's very practical reasons for reading. There's people who have to read as their job uh, in a million different capacities. But generally you don't read for a purpose. You read to entertain yourself. You you can read to, to learn something. But, you know, anyone who reads a novel or even a, a, fi- uh, a nonfiction book but about a subject that they'll probably never do anything with but they think is interesting like that's perfectly fine as a reason to read like no one's gonna say oh that's weird that you're reading for the sake of reading like, no that's kind of how we accept reading so it feels kind of like that where we accept that reading doesn't have to be immediately useful like sometimes or historically there have been criticisms for reading fiction or it's been kind of seen as the, like the lesser between fiction and non-fiction but we we've i think generally accepted that it's fine to read for the pleasure of reading. So it's interesting that doing math for the pleasure of doing math isn't as much of a thing. Yeah, and you're touching exactly, I think, what I what my project was about, what I wanted to understand, how we could shift that slowly. <laughs> That's a very interesting project, and I would be really interested to know at what point math became kind of the hard thing that is not for fun. Mm. I mean, for I, obviously for many people, there's also a ton of people like you who think that math is great and fun and interesting. But I think it's less than the number of people who think that reading, for example, is. So I'd be really curious to know when that split happened. Mm. Yeah, it almost feels like it's always been like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for sure, there's there's always we know that there's been people centuries back that were doing math and enjoyed it. But it seems like that was almost always reserved to certain people in society. But uh, I should look more into it. And I really like the idea of using hypothetical questions maybe to help other people who really don't like math to think about what it could be like if they did. Mm-hmm. Do you have any any examples that came to mind? Or? Um, well, I think just because some people are told, were told or interiorized this idea that they're inherently bad at math, mm-hmm. they don't even allow themselves to approach math. They reject the idea of doing math, right? And maybe hypothetical questions could help them see, like, just, like, let that, put that to the side for a second and 
yeah, maybe let themselves do some math <laughs> and see if they enjoy it or not for themselves. So something like imagine that you're a world famous mathematician. <laughs> Here's a list of problems or something that you can choose from. No one's going to judge you. Have fun. Yeah. <laughs> depending on the person, I think that could have a really big effect. I think that depending again on a person's background, some people might have a bit of a resistance to either hypothetical questions or or stupid questions like or or situations that they know to be absurd. I think that there's kind of people who are who are are willing and able to just accept a premise and then go with it. And then people who are going to get hung up on the premise, which I mean fair enough, it's it's an absurd situation, you're never going to be in it. Um but then that really goes back to the usefulness of useless knowledge that you, that you were talking about, where I think it's really important to be able to, even if, even if you don't accept the the premise, to act as if you do, because otherwise you're just going to get hung up on on the question itself, on the problem itself. You know, in, in your example, if you say, okay, what if you were a like fantastic mathematician? How would you solve this problem? Something like that. If the answer is, but I'm not then it's kind of, it's not going to be very productive. Whereas if you at least put aside like, yeah, I'm not, but we're going to ignore that for now and we're going to pretend like that's the case, then that could lead to some interesting results, which is interesting because it's by pretending that something is true, you can get results that are real. Mm. Yeah, totally. I think, I actually I can relate to that quite a lot, or especially like, I think in earlier years of my school uh <laughs> of my schooling um if there were hypothetical questions like that i would get a bit hung up on the premise because i was so used to there being a one right answer so this is how the world is and then you ask something and well there's only one right answer it either is or it isn't like that but with hypothetical questions there isn't necessarily one right answer anymore and so if you feel like oh, you have to give the one right answer, but then you can't find it because there isn't. Right. You get, it's scary, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think one thing that's done really well here at Building 21, which is why these discussions are f- so fruitful, or one reason maybe is that we're not scared of saying something wrong because we're trying things and maybe sometimes there's no right and wrong, but there's interesting ideas. Yeah, I think maybe that's, Apart, I think you're right. I think that maybe the fear of saying something stupid or something wrong, stupid obviously in quotation marks here, prevents a lot of a lot of people from doing something. I an, another example along these lines that I, I just thought of is that whenever a prof would give an assignment and the instructions were a bit vague, mm. like my reaction was fantastic. The instructions are vague. I can do whatever I want with this, and I can't be told that it was wrong because. There's nothing about it in the instruction. Whereas a lot of students were like would, would go up to the to the prof and ask like, "What did you mean by this? What's the rubric? What exactly is there?" Because of a fear of not fulfilling the the requirements. And in a university setting, there's also that a complication of grades, right? So like, my approach might have come with a bit of a risk because maybe the instructions weren't vague on purpose, but because the professor hadn't thought about them that much or or whatever it was. In which case, my taking it kind of liberally or, or however I thought about it might have resulted in a lower grade because I didn't fulfill what the professor wanted, which I think is what a lot of those students were, were afraid of. So by asking like, no, but what do you mean? I like, we need something very concrete. 
also making sure that you don't lose points when you could have avoided losing points. But maybe that approach exists in general, even outside of university or, or school environments. And that's one of the reasons why it's, it's hard to ask these questions sometimes or answer them. Yeah, and actually to come back to the idea of value, maybe just like the process of engaging with hypothetical questions can help us become more comfortable with situations where there's no clearly defined rules or no clearly defined way to approach it or right and wrong answer, I guess. Yeah, I wonder, uh, this this is going to be a hypothetical question in and of itself, um, what if we viewed problems in life as hypothetical questions? So like, rather than saying should I turn right or should I turn left here? Ask, what if I turned right? What if I turned left? And then imagining the, the situations. And with a question like that, unless it's a specific episode of Doctor Who called Turn Left, uh, <laughs> uh, probably there's not going to be that, that much difference. But I don't know if you have the problem of you're, you're moving cities and you have the choice between two cities, which one do you go to? Then maybe specifically asking as a hypothetical question, what would happen if... I did the, what would happen if I moved here? What would happen if I moved here? Maybe helps you imagine the situations a bit more clearly. And I think we kind of do this intuitively where, you know, things like pro-con lists or other strategies already kind of follow the hypothetical model, but without it specifically being a hypothetical question. So I wonder what would happen if, if we just viewed problems as hypothetical questions. I like the idea. For sure, I think on an emotional, psychological level, probably it helps to take some distance. Mm-hmm. And also, I think, interestingly, sometimes when we ask hypothetical questions, I, I'm i confronted with some ideas I took for granted. And then sometimes I wasn't even aware that I took these things for granted. And then by asking what at first maybe seemed like silly questions, I get to really ask myself, do I have to take this for granted? And it can open up new possibilities. Do you have any examples? What if there were no grades in universities, maybe? <laughs> I think it's a far-reaching question, but it can have consequences on how we approach learning. And maybe some things you're like, oh, but this is the only way to learn. And then uh, maybe not really. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think with a lot of the questions, because um, I'm thinking specifically of the, of the discussion series we have with Chris Buttle, uh, on the future of learning. And I think that question was brought up specifically, what if we didn't have grades? I think this was one of the very first discussions last year when, when this series was starting. Chris Buttle was just kind of throwing out a bunch of a bunch of ideas. And he specifically said, these are all going to sound weird or strange or impossible. But like, what would a university without professors look like? What would a university without students look like? What would a university without a physical space look like? And yeah, like the first reaction is, well, they wouldn't exist. But then you think about it and, you know, if you suddenly don't have something that you thought was essential, you have to come up with something to replace it, which can lead to really interesting solutions. Yeah, whoa. I really like the question also, what would a university without students look like? Because I feel like most often we think about this model where, well, a student goes to university because they want to get something out of it. So it's really like a one-way thing where the university is offering something to the student. But when we think about what happened if we removed all the students, well, profs could still do research, but I think it would have an impact on their research. Mm-hmm. And I think like that's also maybe something we just didn't see before, like how the students also contribute a lot to what makes the university... Yeah, a bunch of those questions at first I was just kind of... Or the, another one more recently, which was... What if we taught less stuff in classes? 
which kind of blew my mind when I heard, when I heard it because again having taken a lot of introductory classes in, in biology there's a ton of stuff that you have to memorize I'm sure it's the case in, in with with a lot of different subjects but there's a ton of things that you have to memorize there's and it's all really small things that unless you're going to stick to a particular field you're not really going to have to use again or if you do need to use them you're going to learn about them again when it becomes relevant and I just kind of you know like yeah it's annoying but we have to do it and then when the question came up but why do we have to do it I was like oh huh that's, that's a good point. As you just said, like that this question blew your mind. It made me think that maybe sometimes it's not even just about answering hypothetical questions, but asking them. So <laughs> I guess like I ha- my question to you is, do you have any process on how people ask hypothetical questions or any advice? <laughs> I, that's actually, I, w- I was just wondering exactly that question. Um, what I was thinking, it, it seems to be a skill. Like we talked about how mm. a- accepting a p- hypothetical premise and answering it is a little bit of a skill to be to be learned uh, that not everyone immediately accepts and you have to, to work on it a little bit. Uh, and, and I'd like to come back to that at some point. But yeah, asking the question itself, I think already requires you to, to think slightly differently. Um, the analogy that just came to mind, which hopefully will be relevant to you, I don't know about how, how many of the, the listeners, but when I was learning how to solve geometric proofs, like proving two triangles are similar or something like that, it took me a really long time to get it because I just was like, well, the two triangles are similar because they're the same shape. Like, it's a, And so like actually proving it was different until I realized I had to really separate, like look at each individual component and treat each, each side as its own entity and not as part of the triangle. So I wonder whether maybe that's part of the skill, you can call it that, of asking hypothetical questions is that you take a situation or a problem or whatever it is, and you dissect it into all its parts. And then you just kind of play around with taking one out, adding a different part in, switching to different to different parts of it. So that, well, again, like, how do you get to your, what does a city look like without cars? You can start with, all right, there's too much pollution in cities. We have two aspects here. We have, or three, we've got too much pollution cities. Okay, let's go with the pollution what causes pollution? Well, primarily cars. Okay, what would happen if we just got rid of them? And then that leads to the to the question. I like the idea of like that the questions are made of a small distinct parts. And I feel like often maybe also for absurd questions in particular, it's because these these parts are usually not like seen together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess maybe that links also a bit to like creativity or like this ability to like think outside of what is usually connected. Actually, that reminds me of uh, a friend once told me of this very simple test where you just have to say three words. You don't get a lot of time. You just have to say three words and try to make them as different as possible. And it's actually hard. <laughs> as, as different as possible in, in what sense? In, I guess, semantically. Okay. Uh, but to study this, you would need to like define a quantitative like, distance measure between words. But just intuitively, try to like say three words that are like, as different as possible. And that's actually quite hard. Uh, yeah. So, so like, it's like <laughs> if I say cat, lamp, and banana, or something like that. Right. Exactly. But you can find connections between the words, and so you want to have as few connections between all three as possible. Yeah. For example, you could all have these in a in an apartment, right? Right. They could all be found in an apartment. So in that sense, they're pretty connected. And they're all physical objects, mm-hmm. whereas you could also have used words that. Maybe you're more abstract, but yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Because then that, that game kind of goes into two parts. It's trying to figure out, mm. the, like trying to find things that are as little connected as possible. And from the other person, trying to find 
the connections between objects. Because right now my, my thought process was, all right, I'm going to have an, an animal, an object, and a plant or something like that, and not really think that much about it, but completely separate things. And then your response was to find the connect, like the thing that connects them all, which is two very different thought processes, but that go hand in hand in a very interesting way. And actually going back uh, real quick, so that, that's as far as asking the hypothetical questions, which I think is a very useful skill that maybe more people should know or be taught. Um, but you mentioned that you didn't, you used to get hung up a lot on the questions themselves and from the discussion and everything that seems to have changed. So was there like a switch in your understanding of, of a hypothetical? Was there something that happened that made you more willing to accept? Mm-mm. I wonder if it's myself who changed or if it's also the setting just that changed a lot. Because as a child, I love to imagine <laughs> what the world would look like under weird, absurd circumstances. But whenever I was in school, I feel like I would get hung up on it because there was this expectation that there had to be one answer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, <laughs> does that answer the question? <laughs> I, 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 I guess, well, going that direction, but then since then, it, it, if it's not a too personal question, really, do mm-hmm. you know what changed to make you more likely to imagine the world again, like when you were little? Mm. I think B21 is definitely a... <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful space for that. But also just with my friends, I'd say. Because I I guess with them, I'm already not scared of being judged, right? Mm. And I feel more comfortable just playing around with ideas. I think when I'm with my friends, I also feel more confident and hopeful about the future and the impact we can have on it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's very broadly put. No, no, no. no. That's a a really, really interesting point. So I guess kind of the freedom to be wrong or to play around with ideas that you don't know are necessarily right. Because a lot of these aren't necessarily wrong either, but just playing around with ideas with no judgment and having the space and the knowledge that you can play around with things leads to being able to to entertain these questions or these ideas, which is a really nice thought because then if we can if we can get that for, for everyone or if we can form more environments where you can do this without fear of being judged with, with confidence, without fear of being wrong. If that leads to more hypothetical questions, and if, as we were kind of saying before, more hypothetical questions lead to more answers or more fun or just good things in general like those, mm. then that would be one really good reason to start nurturing more of those environments. Yeah, I 100% agree. And as you said, it also just made me think that I feel like classrooms should be more like that also. <laughs> yeah. Especially because what you pointed out about once you were in school, there was a right answer. And I'm, I'm guessing here, but probably that it wasn't the case when you were in the very first few grades of school, but that as you got into more advanced classes, it became more and more the, the problem. Um, so if classrooms in general were more geared towards imagining and exploring and entertaining weird ideas, then maybe this would become you know, more people would be comfortable with hypothetical questions and would be comfortable with exploring solutions that seem impossible or you don't understand how you could have gotten there. Did you have anything anything else to add or any other questions? No, uh, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much for joining the, the podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening and stay tuned for whatever the, the next episode will bring. Thank you. See you.